Beautiful. All right, here we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26, and we will uh, start at verse 1 this morning. Matthew 26, starting at verse 1. Uh, Jesus is speaking. He just finished his Sermon on Mount Olives that we finished in last week's in chapter 25. So this morning, we pick up at chapter 26. We're in Jesus' final week on earth. The Lord Jesus speaking to his people. His final words to us. Matthew 26, we read, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together, in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to, the, to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Friends, here's what I think is the main idea of Matthew chapter 26, the main point of this sermon. Jesus set his heart to die for us. But we can set our hearts either against or for him. So where's your heart this morning? Jesus set his heart to die for us. But we can set our hearts either against or for him. So where's your heart this morning? You read through this passage, as I did this, this week several times, I wonder if you're struck with, with how many shocking things are there. How many striking things that seemingly don't match. This passage is full of shocking events and shocking scenes. And this morning, we want to focus our attention around Four shocking scenes that we see in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. So the four shocking scenes we'll, we'll center our thoughts around this morning. Number one, the prediction. We said it in verses 1 and 2. Number two, the plotting. We see that in verses 3 through 5. Number three, the pouring. We see that in verses 6 through 13. And the fourth shocking scene we see is the price. We said in verses 14 through 16. All right, so four Ps, the prediction, verses 1 and 2, the plotting, verses 3 through 5, the pouring in verses 6 through 13, and the price in verses 14 through 16. Point number one, the prediction. We, we see in verse 1 that Jesus concludes the last of the five discourses, the five blocks of teaching that he gives in Matthew's gospel. Verse 1 says that, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. It's the same formula we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, and Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. It's, it's after each block of Jesus' teaching, right? After each block, there's kind of formulaic sentence or statement that says something like, after Jesus had done this. Here now, after his fifth and final sermon regarding the coming 
future judgment, Jesus wraps up his formal public teaching ministry. The time for talking is over. Now it's time for final actions. And what is that final action? Jesus was going to die. He tells his disciples in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. It's the fourth time in Matthew that Jesus predicts his death. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Matthew 17, verse 22, we read, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus' death is no surprise to him. He did not mean for it to be a surprise to his disciples either. But in those previous instances, the prediction seemed far off, sometime in the future, but now it's imminent in two days. And this is the first time that Jesus links his death to the Passover. The Passover was that annual Jewish feast that celebrated God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt. The Lord instituted the Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12 as a memorial to be continually held by Israel. For the Passover feast, a lamb without blemish was to be slaughtered. And at least for that inaugural Passover, its blood was to be painted over the doorposts of the Israelite people. So that when the Lord passed through the land of Egypt in judgment to kill all the firstborn children, he would pass over the houses where he saw the blood of the lamb. Jesus' impending death at this coming Passover in just two days would be where a true and better lamb would be sacrificed to, to cover the sins that bring death, not just to firstborn sons, but to all those who are born in sin and in bondage to it. But what's shocking here is that death is mentioned at all. I mean, especially considering who's speaking, Jesus, the Son of Man. I mean, as we said last week, the title was one of glory and authority. I mean, let, let your mind, your eyes drip, drift over to, to chapter 25. We were last week, and look at verse 31, where Jesus there predicts that the Son of Man will come back to earth in his glory. And all the angels will be with him, and he will sit on a glorious throne. Well, here Jesus says that same son of glory is going to suffer a shameful death. The son of man crucified. How would the one who is glorious and have all power be crucified and be killed? Well, he would willingly lay down his life for the sake of others. Oh, there would be a crown coming as king, but there was first a cross coming as suffering sacrifice. Friends, please don't mistake Jesus as a victim of circumstance. Please don't mistake Jesus as some poor guy who got caught up in the moment, got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up getting himself killed. No, here was the glorious son of man, the son of God in total control over every single element in his life, even up to his own death. He knew the timing of it, 
and he was marching towards it. You know the Passover is coming in two days. Well, know this also, the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified in two days as well. It's shocking to see someone so powerful predicting something that looks so weak, like his own crucifixion, and yet being in complete command over it. His death was determined. Jesus set his heart to die for us. As one of the other gospels say, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to the cross. As an act of love, he would be delivered up to be crucified. But by who? Uh, that leads to, to the second shocking scene we see in this text, the, the plotting. Point number two, the plotting. While it's shocking that Jesus, the Son of Man, says he'll be delivered up to be crucified, equally shocking is those who want to see him killed, who are plotting or planning his murder. It's not the misguided juveniles in Jerusalem who have their hearts set on homicide. It's not the crime lords in the dark underworld of Jerusalem culture who are cooking up a plan to put Jesus to death. It's not the Roman forces who occupy Jerusalem and who are looking to squelch any semblance of sedition. It's the religious leaders who are planning an assassination. The ones who should be holy hold an unholy huddle. Verses 3 to 4 tell us, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas and plotted in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, by secret, and kill him. The chief priests were of the Sadducee party. They served in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing body that was responsible for civil and religious leadership. And the high priest sat at the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the top dog in the Sanhedrin. These religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. And in doing so, they show themselves not to be religious at all, but only in name only, because true religion is devoted to God and desires to do his will. These men oppose God and set themselves in allegiance with God's enemies who oppose God and who refuse to do his will. And they fall in line with and are a fulfillment of the passage that Adam read for us earlier in Psalm 2. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers Take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. These rulers take counsel against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the anointed one. See here the contrast between the way they use their authority and the way Jesus uses his. Jesus, the son of man who has all authority, uses his authority to serve others. He lays down his authority to die. These chief priests and elders who have far less authority, who have merely earthly limited authority, abuse their authority by plotting to put an innocent man to death. So deep was their hatred towards him. But, but why did they hate Jesus so much? Well, what was it for? Well, the religious leaders' resentment towards Jesus has been growing throughout the book of Matthew. Back in the beginning of chapter 9, they, they accused Jesus of blasphemy in their hearts because he dared claim that he could forgive someone of their sins, something that only God could do. 
by the end of chapter 9, they, they graduated to condemning him with their lips, claiming that his miraculous works were demon-empowered. He cast out demons by the prince of demons, they said. What silly logic. By the time you get to chapter 12, they're already conspiring to kill him for supposedly breaking the Sabbath, for having the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. And in chapter 21, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and they see all the crowds swell in anticipation and excitement, claiming that Jesus was the blessed son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna, they praise. They sought to arrest him, motivated by envy and, and spites. Here, then, is the culmination of their contempt for the Lord. They are at the point where they're ready to actually murder Jesus. Friends, I hope you see here how, how sin and disbelief work. You can't put a lid on your heart once it's stirred up against the Lord. Right? You can't control what comes out. It just spills over. What starts as perhaps subtle dismissal of some of Jesus' claims over your life can quickly progress into outright rejection of Jesus where you actively war against him. I mean, Jesus, in his first set of teachings in this book, back in Matthew chapter 5, noted how anger in the heart can quickly lead to murder with the hands. We see something of the seed of sin and how it grows in these religious leaders' hearts and now stretches out to their hands. And notice the only thing that stops their plans, or the only thing that, that at least seems to put a speed bump in their plans, is not the nature of what they're planning to do. No one comes to their senses and says, guys, hold on, hold on, we tripping, we got to settle down. We are talking about killing someone. Wake up, guys, we know we don't like him. We, we are talking about killing somebody. We are the religious leaders. We know the law. The sixth commandment in the law says, thou shalt not murder. Amen. We cannot do this and sin against God. That never pops into their minds. <laughs> the only moment of hesitation is regarding the timing of the thing and how it will make them look among the people. I mean, look at verse 5. They don't say, stop, let's not do this. They only say, let's not do it during the Passover. It's the holy time. We can't do it during the holy time. <laughs> you see, Jesus was, was famous with the people. And all the people, tens of thousands of worshiping Jews, would be gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. So taking popular Jesus in the eyes in front of everybody who, who liked him and arresting him and killing him would upset some folks. Would, would cast a negative light on the religious leaders, would cause them some havoc. So they say, let's wait until a more opportune time. They cared more about people's response to their actions than about God's. They feared people more than they feared the Lord. Friends, that is a dangerous way to live. To make all your actions dependent upon what others might think about you. To, to do something because you think it will win other people's praise. Or to not do something because you think it will warrant other people's criticisms. I wonder if that's how you live your life. As a slave to other people's opinions and thoughts. Living your life, doing things or not doing things based on what your friends might think or what they might say how others around you might respond. Saints, the first and most important question is what does the Lord, who knows and sees all, what does he think? Your primary audience is God. What does he think of what you're doing, and what will be his response? 
these religious leaders thought nothing of God, only of themselves, and they sought to put God's son to death. They didn't realize that it was his death that they actually needed. I mean, Jesus was going to lovingly die in the place of sinners so that they could be saved. But they failed to recognize themselves as sinners in need of salvation. And especially not from this Jesus, some carpenter's son. They devalued Jesus. And they denied him. And they sought to put him to death. So notice here how the purpose of Christ to die is met by the evil plans of men to kill him. How the love of God is met with the hatred of men. Jesus has good plans for his people to save them. His heart is for us. But some men have evil plans for him. Their hearts are set against him. Saints, where is your heart this morning? Are you actively opposing the Lord's plans and purposes? I mean, perhaps even right now you're plotting to put Jesus to death in your mind. I mean, not physically kill him, but in essence, killing any affections for him. Crucifying any of his claims of lordship over your life as you plan to get turned up later for the Super Bowl or to indulge in some pre-planned sin later on this week. Jesus' heart is out for you, but already you are planning to do him wrong, to put him to death. Don't you know the heart of Christ for you? That should slow you from your murderous plans, your evil, sinful plotting. Don't you see the heart behind the intentionality of verse 2? That Jesus Christ willingly came to die for your sins so that you and I might no longer be in bondage to them and that you and I might no longer have to be judged for them, have to die for them. Because he was judged and died in our place for us. Or don't you care? Is Jesus just a nuisance to you? A nobody to you? Are you willing to put Jesus to death so that your sinful desires and intentions can live? It's striking to see Jesus' love and some people's hates, even supposedly religious people. But there's another striking picture we see in this passage, one where there is love that is reciprocated, which leads to the next scene centered around the pouring of oil. Point number three, the the pouring. Jesus has predicted his death in just a couple of days. Behind the scenes, the powerful religious leaders are plotting his death. But notice the situation in verses 6 through 13. Jesus is not anxious or worrying. He's not pacing back and forth and wringing his hands and afraid. He's not out sowing his wild oats with death so imminent. I mean, Jesus doesn't feel like he's wasting his life by still being a virgin at 33. And so now he needs to run out and and fill up some missing void. No, Jesus is doing in his last moments on earth what he's been doing for much of Matthew's gospel. Spending time with his disciples. His presence on earth would be short, but he spent his last days present with his people, reclining at table, eating with them, talking with them, teaching them through both his words and his actions. I mean, what what selfless love the Lord shows? I mean, as John 13, chapter 1 says, now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to his father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus lived up to the last moment loving his own. 
He didn't spend the last moments of life living it up for himself. He loved his own. And notice the setting in this passage. Verse 6 says that Jesus is with his disciples in the town of Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. I mean, leprosy was that skin disease that made one unclean and basically cut you off from society. It's likely that this man no longer had leprosy, was healed probably, perhaps by Jesus, else he wouldn't have been allowed back in the city and all these people wouldn't be in his house. But even healed, often the stigma remained. You know, the, the stench of once you, what you once were can, can still make you a social outcast. You know, once a convict, always a convict. And so cut off from law-abiding folks. Once an addict, always an addict. And so beneath pristine folks. But notice Jesus does not stiff arm who others might write off. Right? Jesus, for Jesus, there is no such thing as a social outcast. As a matter of fact, when you read the Gospels, Jesus' heart goes out for the outcast to bring them in. He comes in to this man's home for a meal with his disciples. And others are present. I mean, Simon the leper is there, but so are women. Verse 7 tells us that a, a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and poured it on his head as he reclined at table. You know, some detractors of Christianity, claim that it's a misogynistic religion. Uh, they claim that inherent in Christianity is a contempt for women. I mean, look at the evidence. Jesus' 12 disciples were all men. Paul says women can't be pastors. Sadly, the, the way some Pastors and the way some churches have practiced ministry has given some credence to these claims of, of male chauvinism within Christianity. But friends, the solution is to look more closely to the Bible. Yes, Jesus' 12 disciples were men, and yes, the office of pastor is reserved for men in the Bible. But those are not the only important roles in the Bible. I mean, if you read through the four Gospels, you see how prominent a role women played in the ministry of King Jesus. I mean, a passage like Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, tells us that Jesus went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women Mary, called Magdalene, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many other women who provided for them out of their means. Women were vital to Jesus' ministry. They may not have been among the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles specially commissioned by Jesus, but so were not many other men too, right? There's only 12 of them. But women were part of Jesus's larger group of disciples who loved the Lord and followed him and provided him, provided for him and served him. Which puts into context why you see a woman here with Jesus and the disciples in this home. It may have been strange in Jewish society to, to show any esteem, to pay any attention to women, but it was not strange in Jesus's circle. All needed to know the Savior, and Jesus calls all men and women to come to me. Amen. In John's gospel, the apostle John identifies the woman in verse 7 as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She comes and breaks a flask and pours what John says was a pound of this very expensive ointment called nard. No idea what nard is but it's expensive, they say. <laughs> a pound of nard was worth nearly 300 denarii. So basically, one pound of, of this ointment 
was worth a year's worth of wages for a worker. Right? It was a, a, an expensive ointment. It was a special oil, a perfume oil used for acts of solemn devotion. Mary, unlike the religious leaders, was devoted to Jesus. And this anointing was a symbol of that. I mean, if you, you trace the, the, the theme of anointing in the Bible, it ain't just regular folks who get anointed. It's priests and kings who are anointed with oil on their heads. Mary's devotion here is not to some mere man. It's to the ultimate priest king, Jesus, who, like a priest, in a few days soon would make a sacrifice, not of an animal, but of his own life as a sin-bearing atonement for all the sins of all those who would turn to him. And it's the same Jesus who, like a king, would rise from the grave, conquering over sin and Satan and hell and reigning eternally on his throne as the Messiah overall. Mary devoted her life to the priest king Jesus, and this anointing of oil was a sign of it. But this pouring of oil was like pouring gasoline on a fire for the disciples. It inflamed their tempers. Verse 8 says, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That just means angry. It sounds better than angry. They're indignant. They thought it was a waste, verse 8 tells us. They say, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. I mean, a pound of nard? We could have gotten 300 denarii for this, maybe more. And you, you silly woman, you poured it on Jesus. You know how many people we could have helped, how many people we could have served with that money? Dummy? Fool, <laughs> women. But notice how Jesus comes to the rescue. Like, hey, 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 don't talk to her like that. Verse 10, don't trouble this woman. Jesus does not sit aside and let sisters get harshly talked to. Jesus does not sit aside and let sisters get harshly talked to. And men, neither should you. Amen. Friends, we do not intend to be a church that puts up with or promotes or practices the kind of speech or mindset that minimizes sisters, whether that's from pastors or from husbands or from any other members, because that is not of Jesus. So, 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 men, if you are guilty of these kind of actions, know that you are at odds with Jesus and he is not pleased. And so you must repent. Jesus is a protector and a defender. And he looks at women and their works in his service, not as wasted, but as wonderful what you call a waste, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Friends, it's Jesus' analysis that matters. It's Jesus' judgment that counts. And this woman wasn't meaning to neglect the importance of serving the poor by anointing Jesus with this expensive oil. Rather, she was noticing the greater importance of serving the greater one who was before her. Right there in her presence, yes, the poor out there, they need help, but right there in her presence was the greatest person in all the world, Jesus Christ. And he was worth everything to her. She'd break a thousand flasks filled with 10,000 pounds of oil worth $10 million of money out of love and care for her king. She didn't value the oil, who cares? She valued her Lord. What a model of devotion to the Lord. And again, notice how the Bible puts up women as examples of piety and of faith. This woman valued the Lord. It was this same Mary, this woman here, Mary, who in Luke chapter 10 irritated her sister Martha. 
And Martha had welcomed Jesus in her house and was busy serving and preparing, you know, getting stuff out the oven, setting the table, getting all the chairs arranged. And there was her sister Mary. Instead of serving and slaving, she's sitting there at the feet of Jesus listening to him talk. And Jesus says that was a good thing. Then Mary sat at her feet, at his feet as he taught her. It was probably one of many instances where this woman downplayed the importance of all the other things she could be doing. Serving the poor, serving the table, and sat at the feet of Jesus listening to and learning from him. Oh, the lesson she learned over the months and years. She, she learned of his authority. She learned of his compassion. She learned of his mercy. She learned of his forgiveness. And the more she learned about him, the more she loved him. You see, the more you know of Jesus, the more you should love him. I mean, that's how it is with your spouse. When, when y'all dating, we talked about this, some of our women talked about this yesterday. When you, when you first start dating somebody, Right. Hopefully, 30 years later, you don't still have the same puppy love that, that was yours in, in high school. Right. Your heart only goes out to them because they wore that fresh polo outfit or something. Right. Hopefully, as the relationship deepens, as you know, the more you love them because of the character that they've shown you. Because when you were sick, they, they haven't abandoned you. When, 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 when you as a husband put on a few pounds or more than a few. They didn't start looking around, or as Warner said earlier, as we lose some of those hair follicles. No, they say, I'm going to keep my vow and stay faithful to you, because, because it's you I love. You see, the more you know of someone, the more your affection should grow for them. As you grow closer to Jesus, hopefully your affections have grown, that you're not still holding on to, to the amazing love that was yours when you found out that Jesus actually died to save me? That's amazing, but you realize that as you've progressed and you've seen more of your own sin, that he still loves you and does not intend to ever leave you and, and, and calls you his own and esteems you and values you and is waiting to prepare a place for you in heaven, your love for him should increase. Amen. Oh, he loves you. And as the more we know him, our love for him should increase. He becomes bigger and sweeter and better even as the trials go deeper, as the deaths grow more frequent, Jesus Christ is there, promising never to leave or forsake you, filling every hole and every void, being there with his people, just as he is here in his final days on earth, presence with his people. Our affection should grow for him the more we know of him. Saints, that's why we labor through books of the Bible and preach long sermons on Sunday mornings. That's why we spend every Wednesday evening working systematically through verses very slowly in our inductive Bible study so that we can learn about Jesus. Amen. But we learn about Jesus not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but to fill our hearts with love so that we might love the Lord with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds and with all our strengths, so that we might love him with all that we are and with all that he, we have, because he is worth it. This woman, Mary, knew it. She poured out this oil as an act of love for the Lord. And Jesus commends her acts of love and devotion. Notice Jesus in verse 12 does not side with the disciples and rebuke the woman, but he rebukes his disciples. He says, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. There'll be plenty of time to serve the poor if that's what your heart is set on, but my time with you is short. And while I'm here with you, your heart needs to be where this woman's heart is, on me. And notice where specifically Jesus sets their hearts. Not simply on him as a person of great honor, but on the dishonorable act he was about to undertake. He was about to die. He says in verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus won't let his impending death escape the disciples' minds. 
He does not want them to miss or minimize the cross. Even in light of other important and pressing things like caring for the poor. No, the cross is the central point of his ministry. Jesus Christ came to die. Friends, that's, that's how bad and deep our sin is. We can't do anything on our own to get ourselves out. We can't make enough money or pay enough money to redeem the deadly consequences or remedy the deadly consequences of sin. We can't do enough acts of piety to the poor or anybody else. We are utterly helpless and utterly hopeless on our own. So then see the love of God in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us. See the love of Christ in willingly coming and taking up a cross to bear our sins and give his life as a ransom for many. We needed a savior. And Jesus Christ came to be that savior. He lived the perfect life for us, but would die and be buried for us. In anointing Jesus' body with oil, it probably certainly wasn't the, the stated purpose or intention of this woman. Right? She didn't know that it was going to be for a burial. That wasn't forefront in her mind. But Jesus, Jesus says that her act foreshadows his coming death and burial, where his body would again be anointed with fragrances and oil before it was placed into the tomb. This anointing was preparatory for that future anointing that would come when his slain body would be buried in another man's tomb. Oh, but burial would not be the end of the story. Because then there would be no salvation. If Jesus simply lived and died and was buried, it would be a very sad story. Because then you and I would still be dead, buried in our sins. But notice in verse 13, Jesus speaks of good news that needs to be told. That would be told. I mean, that's what that word gospel means in verse 13. Good news. It's good news and not sad news because Jesus didn't, didn't just live and die and be buried. No, Jesus lived, died, and was buried. But on the third day, he got up from the grave. He was victorious over sin and over death. And he reigns as king and savior over all those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And he commands us to go spread the message of the king in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the world, testifying of the savior's dying love for us and of his death-defeating resurrection from the grave so that we could be saved if we repent and believe in him, if we love him and devote ourselves to him. And see what honor the Lord bestows upon this woman, Mary, who bestowed such honor to him, even as he was near the grave. Beyond the grave, Jesus says, wherever this gospel will be proclaimed, this woman's devotion will be told. He says in verse 13, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told of her. Friends, here we are 2,000 years later and 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem talking about this woman who out of love for the Lord poured out all that she had to the one who would pour out his blood to save her. He was worth everything to her. Her estimation and her actions stand in stark contrast to the religious leaders before her and surprisingly in stark contrast even to the disciples around her. We see that most vividly in the fourth and final scene in this passage as we look at the shocking price. Point number four, the price. In contrast to this woman in verses 6 and 13, notice how little value Jesus was to Judas in verses 14 through 16. He thought Jesus to be small, of little value, not even worth living any longer. And so Judas goes to the people 
who he knows hate Jesus, maybe even a little more than he does. I mean, they've openly stated their hatred from him for him. He's hidden his hatred in his heart until now. So verse 14 tells us that Judas went to the chief priests, to the religious leaders. And now just imagine this. The, the, the religious leaders up in verses 3 through 5 have been plotting on Jesus' death. They've been wondering how to do it secretly without drawing too much attention. And into their hands falls the perfect plan. One of Jesus' insiders, one of his own followers. Verse 14 says, one of the 12 disciples brings us a plan where we can know where to find him in secret and grab him so we can kill him. They probably thought this must be from the Lord. And, and notice the price. Now, this was no freebie. And the Gospel of John tells us that Judas loved money. In fact, there in John chapter 12, Judas is singled out as the leading voice of the attacks of this woman in the previous section. He was the one whose voice was most prominent in calling her out about wasting that oil instead of selling it to the poor for a large sum. But John tells us that it, it was not because Judas was concerned because he wanted to help the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was in charge of the money bag, and so he used to steal money from the money bag. So the more we can put in the money bag, the more I can put into my pockets from the money bag. Judas cared about money. He loved money. So, so this previous scene was the kind of hump that broke the camel's back for Judas. This woman pouring out all that expensive oil for Jesus, and then Jesus praising her for it, instead of condemning her for it, and then talking about how she was preparing his body for burial, it was all the, the tipping point for Judas. He was tired of Jesus' constant talk about selfless sacrifice, about suffering, about death, about securing some future eternal rewards like salvation. Judas was like many today. He wanted to live the prosperous life now. He wanted his pockets filled now. He had no use for some suffering savior who could only give eternal life. What use was that? I mean, eternal life ain't going to pay my bills. Eternal life ain't going to keep me fresh. Eternal life will not support my habit. He wanted something more immediate, more tangible from Jesus. Something that Jesus seemingly did not have to give. So Judas turns to the chief priest to get his fix. And notice his first words in verse 15. What will you give me? That's all he cared about. What can he get? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And the agreed upon price? 30 pieces of silver. Now, it sounds like a lot of money if you don't know the value of silver, but it's not a lot of money. It's not like a talent that we talked about a few weeks ago in the parable of the talents where just one talent was worth 20 years worth of wages. It's not even like the pound of oil that the woman was willing to waste, supposedly, to pour on Jesus that was worth a whole year's wages. Exodus chapter 21, verse 36, tells us that 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. For Jesus? That's all he's worth to you, Judas? I mean, Judas had been around Jesus every day for three years. He'd seen Jesus make some amazing claims and do some amazing things to validate those amazing claims. I mean, Jesus said some, some crazy stuff, some amazing stuff. Stuff like that he was the son of man, full of power and authority, but he showed it all to be true. I mean, Judas had seen the man walk on water. Judas had seen the man touch someone with leprosy and heal him. Judas had seen the man, Jesus, make a paralyzed man walk several times. Judas had seen Jesus feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and some small sardine-sized fish. And then seen him follow it up with an encore 
and feed 4,000 with a few small pieces of bread and a few small fish. Judas had seen Jesus march up to a tomb and call a dead man, Lazarus, to come out from the grave after four days had been in it. And Judas was there watching as the dead man walked out. He'd seen all these things showing Jesus to be the one and only true God of all the world, full of all glory and all power and all authority. He'd seen Jesus with all wisdom able to dumbfound the most skilled scholars. He's seen Jesus able to trouble the most troublesome waters. He's seen Jesus do what no one else could ever do, give life to the dead. And yet Jesus was worth next to nothing to him. I hate him. I can't stand him. I want him dead. So what will you give me? 30 pieces of silver? That's all the religious leaders thought of him. Of course, they devalued him. They they hated him all along. It was a small amount, 30 pieces of silver. Judas said, sure, that's a good amount for me. Sounds good. Oh, but before we get on our high horses here, let's, let's examine ourselves. This is saying you can claim to, to be a Christian. You can claim to be following Christ, but the question is, is he valuable to you? Would you give Jesus up for a small amount? Are you willing to betray your allegiance to Jesus for a few seconds of sexual pleasure? For one ruinous relationship. For a promotion, for the praise and esteem of people. For the promise of temporary wealth or success or status in this life now. What are you prizing as more worthy or valuable than Jesus? Is it your sin? Some person? Something? Saints, let this passage motivate you to give them up rather than give him up. He gave himself up for us. Jesus Christ treasured us. He left heaven and came to earth. He set his heart to die for us so that we might forever be his treasure. Oh, saints, treasure him today in your hearts even as he treasured us in his. Jesus set his heart to die for us. But we can set our hearts against him, like the chief priests, like Judas. Or we can set our hearts on him, like the devoted woman Mary. Where is your heart this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and giving us your word to to read, to meditate on, to be instructed by, to be convicted by, to respond to. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who loved us and willingly came to die for us, who purposed to put down his life for sinners like us. Oh, God, change the purposes of our hearts that we might respond to Christ in love and not leave him. Oh, Lord, keep us from wandering away from him. We pray, Lord, that with all your power and all your strength that you displayed in saving us, that you would keep and sustain us, that you would hold us fast to Christ until he comes at last for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.